you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. And I think we said last week when we did that Mermaids episode, which I have to say, Ben, I I giggled so much while we were making it and probably giggled even more when I listened back to it. Is that because we were talking about topless fish ladies? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, (laughs) I think you said (laughs) you you described something about fish perverts, which uh, a couple of people have retweeted, which I think is quite funny. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag fish perverts could be trending even now. (laughs) But it's still... It's a confusing concept. It like, is, it is, it is. This is never covered in any of the films. Although in Little Is Mermaid, it, well, Little Mermaid, it would have been weird. But yes, yeah. Mermaid, it's in the past. We'll go back it's, to it in 10 years. Yeah, It's yeah, done, it, it's done. And I, and I have to say, it's probably the only episode we've ever done where we've come to a conclusion. But if you've not heard it, we'll leave that as a, as, as a clickbait. I did that joke last week as well. Right, so <laughs> we said last week that we were going to do something a bit different over the next few weeks because it's getting to that time of year. We thought we'd have a look back at some of the best episodes that we've done. Uh, Last year, I think we did the same, but we almost did them in the order that we recorded them. We're doing something a bit different. Over the next Christmas, well, over the Christmas period, we've got uh, a number of genres we've put them into. So the one we're going to focus on today... We've done quite a few episodes in 2021 on cryptids uh, and general weirdness. So I think that's the first one we'll tackle, Ben. Cryptids and general weirdness is the title of this one. Two of my very favourite things. Because of everything that's happening in the world, we still haven't, though, for two years, we've been talking about going to find the werewolf off the M62. Off Cannock Chase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Like every time we get close to it, something something terrible happens in terms of yeah. There's another strain or another, another kind exactly. of semi lockdown. Yeah. I I swear to God, next year if we get some time, I'm going out looking for that werewolf scat. I've got my dog poo bags and oh, come. we're we're yeah. I'll bring it back and I'm going to get it analysed by the local vet and then. They will be so confused when they discover it's a mixture of human and wolf feces. That's that. That's something to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, it's funny, when I was going back through the episodes, I realised we've done that quite a lot this year. We've gone, we're going to go out and stay at Borley Rectory, we're going to go out and stay here, 30 East Drive, all this kind of stuff. And we haven't done any of it. So uh, <laughs> if anyone's listening to us... It isn't we just live in some fantasy world and we're never, ever going to leave the house again. We will do stuff at some point, but it, our list is getting longer. So we, But I think Calic Chase is probably at the top of that list. It is. And talking of cryptids, you kind of got us in there into a nice segue. So the first uh, clip we are going to play you, we did this great episode on alien big cryptids and i guess when we took alien in this context it wasn't as in et extraterrestrial it was more alien to the environment uh, that they live in so mm. have a quick listen to this and uh, we'll be back in a sec probably my favorite thing about this if there is a favorite thing to have about a roaming a roaming alien predator <laughs> 
is what we call them. Because <laughs> I think this is a particularly British thing. The Beast of Cumbria, <laughs> that yeah. is a uh, supposed to be a non-native black cat, like similar to a panther. Okay. Um, the Creature of Cornwall is apparently <laughs> a lion. I mean, I suppose Lion of Cornwall doesn't, yeah. Um, yeah. The Pershaw Panther. That's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. So that that's actually not too far down the road from here. Apparently that was a couple, Robert and Nicola, were left stunned, he says, in inverted commas, after spotting a huge black cat beside the road in Pershaw. Uh, they said it stalked the car like prey, and therefore it becomes the Pershaw Panther. The, the only trouble with all of these is, like in America, it's fine. Like, you know, all your sports teams have got those kind of names. There was a time in the UK where we just haven't, we, we don't really embrace that. But rugby, which I guess is the closest we get to American football in this country, yeah. and when all to spruce up their image, they started coming up with those kind of names, didn't they? Like the Wigan Tigers and stuff like that. Oh, and yeah, that, that's right, that, yeah. They all sound like a bad British attempt to name a, a sporting team in an uh, American do. style they that do. doesn't work. The Cumbrian Beasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, they've only had three well, wins this year. My last piece on British sort of cryptos is, is Wallabies and... I've actually seen a wallaby, so I don't. I don't know if it's well known, but um, like wallabies have got quite well established in the UK now. They're still a very rare sight, but you can see them all over the country. And interestingly, I didn't realise that um, they used to. I don't know if they still do, but I've got reports of them hanging around in London's Highgate Cemetery. Which is oh, a bit really? of a callback to wow, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, really interesting. A vampire, yeah, yeah. But, but, so I didn't realise they were. Com- there are wild ones then, because I've seen them at places like Windsor Safari Park and stuff like that, where they kind of roam around there. But they they've either they've either escaped or been introduced, and they are they they do live in the wild as well. They the, do live I in the wild, yeah, yeah. Which makes me think of. Um, when we did the episode on the Canuck Chase werewolf. Oh, yeah. Because you, I remember you saying there was a, there was a couple of stories of, there was one of a, a, something that looked like a dog being seen on the motorway, but it was a kind of weird shape, and then it got onto two legs and ran off in to the distance. And I, just as you were talking, I wonder if there are wild wallabies and people aren't expecting to see them whether some uh, werewolf sightings could be put down to them because they oh, do I... they do kind of they do kind of trot on fours and then go and stand on two feet and run off on a dark That's night right, with the do. light right you might that might look completely weird and they've got those weird feet haven't they so yeah they and yeah. they've got long tails um and sort of short fur that you know it's almost uh, like greyhoundy yeah, retrievery yeah. Yeah, no, that that does make a lot of sense. That does make a lot of sense. I mean, the time that I saw it, it was just after I passed my driving test and it scared the bejesus out of me, largely because I wasn't expecting to see it. It it was, was in the road. It was a wallaby, not a werewolf. <laughs> no, 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 it was a wallaby. <laughs> yeah. And because it, it, 
it, it was it was as you say bending down on all fours and it was it was like finding something to eat by the side of the road but it was in the road and i thought oh god there's a dog and then it came up on its back legs and i was my brain was like that's not a dog so we heard a bit about your story of wallabies and we made that connection could could wallabies look like werewolves and as you said it kind of started off on four legs and then jumped onto two and disappeared off so i do wonder i do wonder do we know if there's any wallabies in canic chase that might be something we want to look into right uh well i don't know for sure but wallabies are kind of prodigious across the the uk so i would imagine there are but i think the the thing about it is like i can completely understand why some people might think you know that because they're not expecting to see it of course of course of course but when a wallaby moves even if it was it, it starts on all fours and then goes onto its hind legs it doesn't run with knees like like a human uh, or bipedal ape really it hops it genuinely hops and anyone who's been to a zoo will know that it hops and and also they are the least terrifying of all the animals <laughs> possibly with the exception of a hamster and so i don't know when when we did that episode about the uh freedom of information requests and the police sightings and there was those uh or there were those reports of some sort of four-legged dog like a beast that was running between the cars and then got to the verge and then got on two legs and ran that to me does i don't think you would get eight reports because there were eight reports that would mistake a wallaby wallaby, because when wallabies go down on all fours it's not because they're walking like a dog it's because they're using their front paws to help them forage they're they're grazing yeah. they're searching for food and as they move forward they kind of do this movement where they put their front legs down support their weight and then their back legs come forward but they keep their face to the ground because they're, they're searching for for goodies right and yeah. it's not it is absolutely not a four-legged motion where they're using it to gain speed or something like a like like a dog might do and so i think yes possibly in glimpsed in headlights it could be mistaken for a werewolf but i don't know the more i think about it the more i'm thinking i'm not so sure well if we go to calic chase and we come back with a poo bag full of poo and it's wallaby you're going to be really disappointed aren't you (laughs) (laughs) they were alien big cryptids not alien in the extraterrestrial sense but we did do an episode on alien pets that were extraterrestrial oh yeah we did we cover quite a lot in that episode the clip we're going to play you features uh, a couple of stories one about roswell rats and one about alien octopuses aliens not just coming to earth by themselves but bringing their pets with them i found a report of vicious rat-like creatures that were found at the source at the site of the roswell crash oh really yes 
And the strange thing about them was the distinguishing feature, not only were they sort of, did they look like some sort of rat-hamster hybrid, um, but they ran around in formation. So if you imagine how drones, when they're doing formation flying are, you get six and they form a box and they run around in that box. And that is apparently something that was recovered from the crash site. I stumbled across something which genuinely made me, made my jaw drop a little bit. And this is from a paper where it's it's a paper, sorry, it's a journal called The Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. It's a proper scientific journal. And the article in there starts off saying, talking about, is it possible that frozen octopus eggs riding a meteor arrived on Earth 450 million years ago? And there's a reason why they say this so this paper that they published which has contributors they have 33 researchers who are exploring different theories but the one thing they all agree on is that cephalopods so we're talking squid octopus and cuttlefish could have arrived on earth from somewhere else I have heard this before. I don't know much about it, but I have heard this before. And if you've ever seen, especially an octopus, what it can do, um, and it, I don't know if you've ever seen that Netflix thing, My Octopus Teacher, which I love, uh, which is a great documentary. If you've not seen it, you ju- you, you know, I, it doesn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest that they are alien to this world because yeah. there's so much about them that is alien i'm sure you're going to come on to that but i i have heard this before uh both octopus and squid i didn't realize it was the whole the whole uh what they call it genre i wanted to use but that's the wrong thing well it's it's the evolutionary tree yeah um and so yeah i'm just about to to bring that up so so the first thing that they point out is and this I had no idea about this. The genome of the octopus shows what, this is a quote, a staggering level of complexity with 33,000 protein-coding genes, more than is present in Homo sapiens. So th- there's a, a a great level of complexity in that organism. And then... This is the quote that really stands out in that in this paper, and you'll have to stick with me. It's it's five lines long, but um, okay. yep. it's it's worth listening to. The transformative genes leading from the consensus ancestral Nautilus. So, just to aside, you know you 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 know the Nautilus. You see those as um, uh, fossils on the beach. These sort of curly creatures, right. Yep. The consensus ancestral nautilus to the common cuttlefish to squid to the common octopus are not easily to be found in any pre-existing life form 
it is plausible then to suggest that they seem to be borrowed from a far distant, in inverted commas, future in terms of terrestrial evolution, or more realistically, from the cosmos at large. So this is from a paper published in a scientific journal and then is part of a EU scientific library. This is not fringe. This isn't like an article written for, right. uh, you know, a, a magazine the to na- collect. The National Enquirer or anything. That's right. That's right. And it goes on to say specifically about um, the octopus. Its large brain and sophisticated nervous system, camera-like eyes, flexible bodies, instantaneous camouflage via the ability to switch colour and shape are just a few of the striking features that appear suddenly on the evolutionary scene. So that's a key point, suddenly. This terrestrial evolution occurred thanks to, and this is the postulation, cryopreserved squid and or octopus eggs crashing into the ocean on comets 700 million years ago. After listening to that, I don't think I've changed my mind. I do think, so obviously we discussed a little bit about whether DNA could be distributed across the universe, but cephalopods are so different to any other life on Earth. So weird. They are so weird and they have an intelligence to them. They have a, I don't know, it's, it's, they have an aura about them. And really interestingly, and you know, this was a couple of weeks ago before we'd even had a production meeting about doing this. I was speaking to a couple of good friends of mine who are divers and they were saying how mad it is when you go into... Uh, and this, this is waters around the UK as well, when, when you encounter cuttlefish, because these cuttlefish, they're, like, inquisitive. She described them as being, like, little puppies that come up to you and sniff you then, run away. But all the time, they're changing colour and they're changing the texture of their skin. There's something incredible about them, like the fact that evolution came up with them. You do have to think... Oh, What's maybe, going on? yeah, maybe, maybe they did sort of start out on another planet, but apparently, like, if you're a diver and do do comment back to us on our social if you've seen them, but apparently they are incredible because what she described is you go down there and they're so curious, they come up, they have a sniff, they back off, they change, you know, from blue to red and they get spiky and then they get smooth and they come back and then like they might sit on your hand and they might turn white and yeah i mean what an astonishing creature and and to be fair ever since we did that episode about octopuses um i haven't eaten one i sort of felt like no, i don't me. I, I couldn't yeah i couldn't either you know what and i do i do like an octopus salad and I've not been out of touch it. And I know that's hypocritical because, you know, just because they're intelligent, you know, can you only eat stupid animals? But I'm with you. I've, I've not been able to eat one. I've not, been, I've not been able to look one in the eye. And interestingly, I think the colossal colossus squid uh, yes. has the biggest eye of any creature on the planet. 
Yes, yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah. Although, you make a really good point there, and I hadn't really thought about that before, but what if there was a sort of a diet plan which only ate stupid animals? <laughs> well, are stupid animals more fattening then, do you think? Uh, well, what's the most stupid animal? I guess... I don't know. What is the most yeah. stupid animal? You know, we don't we don't feel any like I buy crickets sometimes because they're very good for you. You know, you can get salted crickets in um, in the in the local coffee shop, and they're sort of supposed to be very high in protein. I don't feel guilty about eating a cricket, but on the other hand, I haven't given up. I am still a carnival, but I I I do feel bad about eating pigs. I do. That that reminds me. There was an episode we did. I can't remember what we were talking about. And I, I uh, yeah, I can't remember the episode. It was a UFO one, and it was about a soya bean field. And I oh yes, I, t- I talked about Ed and Barmay being dropped out of the back of a UFO, and you said it was the most middle class comeback ever. I think <laughs> you may have just topped it <laughs> with, with with your favourite bar snack of salted crickets. <laughs> they are nice. I'm not going to yeah, lie, they're I'm nice. Sure. I'm sure. And they're not expensive. I don't think they're like, like this is not, I don't think it's that middle class. I think they're like a pound 20, something like that. Like you it's don't not get about many. The price, Ben. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> to be fair, um, though, that's not cricket. Hey, uh, <laughs> let's move on to. I've got to say, one of the favourite, my favourite episodes uh, that I put together, and I really enjoyed doing on the program because it it took me back to when I lived in Tokyo. We and I did an episode on Japanese ghosts, which are also known as yokai. Mm. And we're moving on, really. I don't know if it counts as a cryptid, but I guess the two stories that we're going to feature in this clip are kind of cryptids, but they're inanimate objects that have been, that have a kind of mythical or haunted nature to them. Have a listen. This is the Kara Kasu Koza. Kozo, sorry. Kara Kasu. Kara Kasa Koza. Caracasa which translates <laughs> to paper umbrella priest boy. <laughs> I, they, they're currently on the A playlist on BBC Radio 6, yeah. I think. Yeah, that one may have got lost a little bit in translation. So these are uh, silly, funny, playful looking yokai. Uh, and they're a transformation. <laughs> this one particularly is a transformation of a Chinese-style oiled paper umbrella. So it's of basically course. a spirit in an umbrella. So I'm, I'm looking at one now. Again, we'll put links to this on social media or the photo album. So this one, I'm look, they do vary. The one I'm looking at, where you would normally have the umbrella... Um, bit that you hold is a leg looks a bit like a bird's leg on top the bit that goes on top of your umbrella when it's down is a hat it has one eye in the middle and then it's got a mouth and it's got a massive tongue (laughs) 
So, yeah, they have a single large eye, a long protruding tongue, either one or two legs upon which they hop around wildly. Karikasakosa are not particularly fearsome as far as yokai go. Their favourite method of surprising humans is to sneak up on them and deliver a large oily lick with their enormous tongues. <laughs> <laughs> That's my dog all over. He'll do yeah. that. Yeah, there you go. This may be traumatic, even though it isn't dangerous. I don't think being licked by an umbrella is traumatic. No, I, I, the thing looks great. It's just so cool. Um, you have to be careful, though. Caution is advised. There are other umbrella yokai which are dangerous to humans, and care should be taken not to confuse not to confuse them with this more playful spirit. Um, some of you may be listening to this podcast just before going to bed, so let me give you a cautionary tale. If you are going to bed, watch out for the boro boroton. It's a kind of haunted duvet. <coughs> <laughs> a kind of <laughs> yeah well it, it's it's it, in japanese it would the boroboroton is described as a tattered futon or a japanese nap mat you know that you'd find <laughs> on the floor boroboroton comes to life at night so it's a duvet or a futon right it rises up into the air throws its owner out of bed that begins to <laughs> twine around the head and neck of the sleeper oh god and with the intent of strangling them. Oh, my God. Boroboroton will come to life when feeling ignored or needless. As some kind of revenge and out of frustration, they float through the rooms of inhabited houses at night and try and strangle any sleeping person they can find. This bit's great. If they can't find anyone... <laughs> They will meet up with other inanimate object spirits and throw noisy parties as they leave the house and stroll around in search of other companion beings. <laughs> noisy parties. Yeah. So oh my. I I if one week listeners turn up and I'm the only one speaking, it could be <laughs> Because Ben's futon has enacted some kind of revenge, like a Boroboroton. That that is extraordinary. Like it just seems like it's it's a piece of well, I don't know what you call it, like nightwear that is just like obnoxious and jealous. Like it, it, I, it doesn't make, make make much sense. So if you pay attention, which I assume is just sleeping on it, yeah. it won't kill you. But if you go, oh, I don't really want to sleep on this because it's or, a or, or you bit, don't look after it. Oh, you don't look. Yeah, well, which like how do you look after it? Like it's difficult to look after a futon. Like anyone who's ever owned a futon, particularly a double futon. It, the the base of it is as heavy as a blooming mattress. I mean, that is not light. And you can't take that to, like, a, a, a dry cleaning centre. Like, to get that out of a house, it takes two people 
like huffing and puffing and then sticking it in the back of a van. And there's no way you can get that clean. Once it's dirty, you have to discard it. It's, it's that. Well, you, know how, you know how you get it out of the house. You throw it a party, obviously. You throw it a party. And and what do futons like to drink, I wonder? I don't know, yeah. that's. Uh, I don't know. Well, it, like... Well, in, in your case, it would be a double, wouldn't it? Because yours was a double. Oh, yeah, it was a double, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I if tonight I hear a really soft knocking at the window, <laughs> like, I mean, the fact it wants to strangle me is a bit off putting. But at the other, on the other side, like, I feel like I'm I'm not a small gentleman. I'm I'm I feel like I'm pretty well built. I think I could take on you could take a, on a- an animated futon. Yeah. So they, there you are, out in a rainstorm. It, it's ju- it's just come down. You get your brolly yeah. out. You you you, you get you, you get it away from everyone else so you don't poke their eye out. My gran always said yeah. you'll have someone's eye out with that. You put it up. Yeah. You think you're safe. Suddenly, a massive tongue wraps its head uh, wraps itself around your head. It's not ideal. <laughs> I got. It's funny. It reminds me of. Uh... Uh, a story my wife's father tells about I don't know if it was his father or or, or one of his uncles who <laughs> was travelling to work on the bus and it was back in the day when everybody had umbrellas right uh, and mm-hmm. he was on the bus and umbrellas were expensive and you got them repaired rather than throw it away and buy a new one right so he's on the bus and he gets up and he accidentally picks up the woman's next to him umbrella. And she said, excuse me, you've taken my umbrella. And he was very apologetic, whatever. Uh, the next week he was on the same bus and he was getting four umbrellas repaired for the family. <laughs> and he sat down opposite the same woman. And she, <laughs> appar- and she apparently looked at him and said, you seem to be having a good week. <laughs> 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 that is I love brilliant. That story. Isn't that a simpler time when umbrellas were currency? Yeah, yeah, but also that kind of that feeling that he was a thief, but it's such a British yeah, yeah. way of dealing with it, isn't it? You seem to be having a good week. <laughs> uh, I don't think I can segue from that into our next episode. But, well, I guess I can, actually. I think I will segue. So there were a couple of cryptids who were inanimate objects, really, if they count as cryptids. But we did, or you did, a great episode on cryptids that were plants. Oh, yeah. They were kind of terrifying. Yeah, They, they and- were really scary. So let's have a listen to a man-eating plant from Madagascar. There was a picture of this tree in Strand Magazine in 1899. Well, I say picture, it's an illustration. But they were reporting on this Polish biologist, Dr. Omelius Fredlowski. Um, and he was he had written a letter to Strand Magazine relaying a story that was apparently told to him by a German explorer who was visiting a primitive tribe called the Makodos uh, in in Madagascar. And he wrote 
to him this this letter which detailed this really bizarre and well it's described as a grotesque tree in which to which this tribe used to sacrifice some of its own wow and he gives uh, he gives a really detailed account of what this tree looks like so he says and this is the direct quote if you can imagine a pineapple eight feet high and thick in proportion resting upon its base and denuded of leaves you will have a good idea of the trunk of the tree a dark dingy brown and apparently as hard as iron from the apex of this truncated cone eight leaves hung sheer to the ground these leaves were about 11 or 12 feet long tapering to a sharp point that looked like a cow's horn and with a concave face thickly set with strong thorny hooks the apex of the cone was a round white concave figure like a smaller plate set within a longer one. This was not a flower but a receptacle and there exuded into it a clear treacly liquid, honey sweet and possessed of violent intoxicating and soporific properties. From underneath the rim of the undermost plate a series of long hairy green tendrils stretched out in every direction. These were seven or eight feet long Above these, six white, almost transparent tentacles reared themselves towards the sky, twirling and twisting with a marvellous incessant motion, thin as reeds. Apparently they were yet four or six feet tall. This thing is, like, that's terrifying. It looks a bit like like a, a tree-size insect rather than a plant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but wow. what he's describing there is, um, you know, you you can imagine it in miniature for uh, for flies and stuff, right? So the fly trap apparently yeah. has a scent, and then you've got that um, that other one which is almost like a bottle, yeah, like a funnel. A once they get stuck in, they can't come out. That's right? right, and the lid sort of pops down. So what he's sort of describing here is something of gigantic proportions and the the lure is almost like a, a drug. But he goes on to describe how he watched the natives um, basically force a woman with their spears to climb up the trunk until she stood at the summit. And then when she drank this liquid the plant basically grabbed her and um (laughs) i won't read the description because it's uh it's a little bit not safe if you're playing this in a car with uh with younger people but basically what he's saying is that the um the thorns and whatever they get her and this thing is sort of vampirous i'll tell you what i love about that episode on carnivorous plants or, or mysterious plants was it, that was of a different time, wasn't it? You know what I mean? Where where explorers were still going around the globe and not many people had travelled abroad. So these wild tales of man-eating plants could really get traction in some quite... Uh, prestigious publications and people were getting funding to do these incredible expeditions to see and find man-eating plants and all other kind of weirdness there's something romantically fantastic about that to me 
there, there is, and I think there's also something that we find uh, viscerally disturbing about plants turning the table, uh, you, you know, on, on us herbivores. Uh, so Day of the Triffids, you know, that was terrifying yeah. because it's plants yeah. getting their comeback. But uh, I've got a Venus flytrap that I really like, and I... To be fair, he doesn't catch any flies because he lives in my kitchen and there aren't any flies there. But it's a, um, I don't know, it's a really weird thing. It's weird because it's it takes plants to a place where they it feels like they're semi-sentient. If you've got a plant which is basically made up of mouths, which is a Venus flytrap, then you sort of feel like, well, it's a very short gap between that growing some legs walking around looking for flies and then all yeah. of a sudden it's having a fight with the spiders in my in my cellar yes it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah. a weird it's a weird thing but it's also a a fascinating thing and yeah all of those like i do think there's a thing about um when you look at the those tales from explorers there's there's something and it's kind of blackadder. It's like, oh well, I need to big up the fact that I, I, you know, I didn't just come over here, speak to some very friendly people who gave me some food, eat a yak, and then sail home again. You, you have, I think there's a thing where you, you know, you're you're writing desk in the middle of the Atlantic, and suddenly you go, well, what am I going to tell my wife? Oh, I know. I'll tell her about the time I fought, I fought a, a man-eating tree. That would be great. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to tell the, the people who funded the uh, expedition that I spent three months sitting on the beach <laughs> drinking coconuts and having a swim. Yeah. That, that's right. And, and eating delicious yak burgers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from uh, vampiric plants to real-life vampires, possibly and real-life vampires of North London, where we covered the story of the Highgate vampire. Have a listen. I think with world events as they are, and following on from a previous episode, I always said that I wanted to have a look at the Highgate vampire story, which was... I would say that it is, you could class it as a story which really revolves around, I'm not sure it's mass hysteria, but certainly hype and press involvement and a whole load of people perhaps chasing wild geese. But when I really got into it, I found out that there was a lot more to it than might meet the eye. And... Yeah, I thought I would tell you about it because it's fascinating. It the story really starts in earnest in February in 1970 and the Highgate sorry the Hampstead right. and Highgate Express running a headline that it, it says does a vampire walk in Highgate and this I think we can trace to the very first moment where people start getting their interest peaked. So this is, like, I think this is fairly typical of the press at the time. Like, we've spoken about um, uh, things like the Enfield Poltergeist and stuff where the press are paying for people to go in and investigate. And this is a sort of a, a high time between 
the early 70s and the early 80s when newspapers are really enjoying these stories and we've spoken before about you know how it's a distraction from perhaps the cold war fear and all that sort of thing but this area of highgate there's there is a backstory to this 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 headline isn't the sort of isn't where it starts that's where it starts for the people who were involved and you know the 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 people who were looking on and reading the the headlines but for years this area was plagued with kind of inexplicable events and sightings nothing to do with me Uh, i'd like to say no no well this this is definitely before your time (laughs) because and it's and it's around the highgate cemetery so in 1967 two adolescent girls walking home along swains lane which uh sort of cuts across the front of the cemetery they appear to have witnessed they they claim sorry to have witnessed the dead rising from their graves by the cemetery's north gate which is a fairly extreme claim to make but that was nevertheless what they said and another teenager uh who was living nearby woke one night and claimed that something cold and clinging was holding onto her hands and it left prominent marks the next morning and the background to all of this was that there were various random reports from unnamed people, as far as I can find out, uh, talking about a tall man in a hat walking in the area. So th- this this man in a hat was seen melting into the cemetery walls. That's what the uh, the the eyewitnesses say. Right. But it didn't stop there. The situation got a bit nastier. And by the early months of 1970, animals were being found dead and their bodies were found drained of blood and they had lacerations to their throats. Right. And this is where, on the 6th of February, our first protagonist enters the scene, David Farrant. And he was a local man and a self-proclaimed magician. Right. And he wrote in uh, the Hammond High newspaper, or rather he wrote a letter to the Hammond High newspaper, that he had recently glimpsed a grey figure he was certain was supernatural and a belief shared by several concerned residents in the letters page. So he begins this thread where he starts lending credence to the fact that he has seen something peculiar in this right. in, in this cemetery so th- this kind of uh accelerates the ball rolling from the teenagers who who had had experiences that's right, right. that's right and all of this uh, it, because don't forget the newspaper have already set out their editorial stance here with their their headline do does a vampire live here and yep. so this is all putting kindling to the flames but his his account um it's not it's not the only one and this is where the second person comes in so he has a rival and this is a man who is a self-proclaimed exorcist a vampire hunter and he calls himself a bishop of the old catholic church right 
and his name is Sean Manchester. Right. And he writes a letter to the same newspaper, the Hammond High, and he says, it became appallingly apparent that the people of Highgate were not witnessing a harmless earthbound apparition, but a vampire. And so this is the first time where we start attaching people with whatever their credibility is, and it's a self-proclaimed credibility, they begin to start taking this very seriously. And this is all happening in the letter section in the Hammond High newspaper. This reaches something of a fever pitch by Friday the 13th of February 1970, and I don't think that date is a mis- you know is, a is an accident. Yeah. yeah. Um, Thames Television ran a program about this unfolding saga, and what they are reporting on is the fact that both Manchester and Farrant declared that they would destroy the evil figure, as they both put it, by stalking Highgate. So they the, they. They were cl- they they claiming they're going to become North London's answer to Van Helsing. Is that that's what exactly saying? right? That's wow. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so Farron at this point is he's rubbishing any notion of um, well, it's quoted as him saying uh, a real Hammer horror style vampire. So he he is saying that that isn't what's happening, whereas Manchester is saying yeah, I think that is exactly what's happening. And he starts referring to this case as, uh, well, he, he talks about this entity as a satanic being. And, right. and so what we, what we now get is another level of uh, sort of interplay. We've kind of got, we've got two factions. We've got Farron, who is, you know, claiming to be a magician and saying this thing is real, but it's not like a vampire that's going to come and fly in through your window as a bat. And we've got Manchester, who is sort of carrying with him the credibility of being like this exorcist and this religious figure. And and he says it is. And then we get the television involved. So we've got the paper involved. Now the television are involved. But it, it turns into something much bigger. So by the end of that programme and within hours of the broadcast... The police realise that there might be this might be a problem for the cemetery. They assemble a police cordon around the cemetery, but wow. dozens of self-proclaimed vampire hunters turning up with homemade stakes and coming from all over London break through that cordon and start searching the cemetery for this Nosferatu. You have this old movie trope gang you know almost a pitchfork carrying gang trying to get after this vampire that's that's perfect isn't it later wow. that year so this is this is february and this this doesn't calm down for a good while the the newspapers are all over this and the news of the world start getting involved but later that year in august 1970 a woman's century-old remains were discovered desecrated near her grave. And then a few weeks later, Farron himself was arrested 
in a nearby churchyard carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake. <laughs> and he ended up suing the News of the World because the News of the World ran a story where they claimed that he would be a would-be cat killer. So they had kind of deviated away from the vampire story, which was kind yeah. of rapidly running out of steam because there wasn't a vampire found. And they were beginning to focus in on these two characters. And Farrant was the first one to feel the wrath, basically. I think with this, what we've got is a really interesting mix of... We've got um, sort of young teenagers claiming to have seen, as I say, the dead rising from their graves. Yeah. We have numerous sightings of a tall man in a hat who appears to melt into the cemetery walls. That's a actual quote from an eyewitness. Um, we've got another teenager who claims to have woken up with something cold and clinging on her hand, which left prominent marks. And then we've got all of the dead animals, which, yeah. uh, you know, it, it seems like they have some kind of weird way of um, becoming deceased. And then we get, the press involved we get the television involved and we have these two characters and i think that is a real really interesting lesson because it's these two characters that drive this whole legend for at least the next 50 years so it, right. it has to be said the news of the world and various local newspapers they do reduce the amount of reporting on this but then it reaches another kind of fever pitch but this fever pitch is the full stop on the end of the story because in 1973 manchester claims to have driven a stake through the vampire's heart in what wow. he what he calls the nearby house of dracula which is in crouch end <laughs> what's what is interesting is these two characters who have a different view on it, um, I think it's best to hear from their own mouths what they think they saw. So the first yeah. clip we'll play is from David Farrant, who created a documentary on uh, what he saw. And this clip is him explaining to an interviewer what he thinks he saw. Have you ever seen this vampire? I have seen it, yes. I saw it last February and I saw it on two occasions. What was it like? It took the form of a tall, grey figure, and it, about eight feet tall, and it seemed to glide off the path without making any noise. And I yeah. think what we should do is contrast this, that, that account from Farron, with um, one from... Sean Manchester. So this is an interview that Sean did in 1990 with the BBC, where he very specifically talks about coming face to face with essentially what he describes as a proper, I guess, to use the parlance that we used before, a proper hammer horror house vampire. Let's take a listen. Well, the Highgate vampire, when I first... Uh looked upon it in its tomb in the Lebanon Circle in the centre of uh, the old Highgate Cemetery looked like um, a several-day-old corpse 
and um, had in fact been resting for some century or so. Not in Highgate Cemetery, but uh, it had been in the cemetery for a, about a century, but it, it was some centuries older than that. Um, but in fact, it looked like, uh, I suppose, a three-day-old corpse. And um, I realized that this wasn't a being, as, as, as we know it, either dead or alive. This was a demonic form, a manifestation from the um, dark world of uh, the devil. Mm -hmm. Why did you realize that? What made you think it was a vampire and, and not just a three-day-old corpse? Because it could leave its tomb without displacing anything. It, it could manifest. Did you see it doing that? Um, it was witnessed by many residents, passers-by, by many people in the general area. Um, on one occasion when it was by the north gate and the headlights of a car um, dissolved it, uh, it passed through the, uh, the iron railings with no problem. Um, a corporeal body or a living person can't do these things. Only a supernatural entity can, as it were, metamorphose. His conclusion to this story, which he does later relate in, in, in his book, is that he he tracks this entity down whilst it's on, I, I presume, a killing spree and then um, and puts a stake through its heart. But the evidence the evidence is sorely lacking. And I think that's the the thing that is so interesting about this because on the surface of it, we've got a great story and all of the legend and lore, it all starts from the letters page in a local newspaper. And then from there, it becomes really quite flimsy. And I just think that is fascinating for like anything that we are looking at in current times i think with with hindsight when you look back at this we've got two people who it's not clear what their motivation for making anything up is and again i will say it and it, it, i'm not saying either of these people are making it up but you have to look at the actual evidence presented and what came out of it and what came out of it was a couple of books and a 50-year history of um, rivalry and almost uh, petty point scoring between these two people. That, that vampire would struggle now to be a vampire in Crouch End, you know, because it's all, it's all hummus and vegan. So <laughs> there's no way you'd survive as a vampire in Crouch End. I think we said so on the episode, Ben. What was so brilliant about the Highgate vampire story was not actually the possibility that a vampire was roaming around North London. What was incredible was the story of those two vampire hunters and their mm. rivalry and everything that went with it. And I guess we, after the, we put out that episode, we got a little taste of that, didn't we? Because, because the the, the oh, two boy. protagonists in that tale, uh, Sean Manchester, who is still alive, uh, and David Farrant, who uh, unfortunately is no longer with us, uh, Sean Manchester, who's still alive, I, I think it's fair to say he didn't like that episode much, did he? And he was 
he was quite angry about it and we had a bit of toing and froing and a bit of grief and we were a bit like oh god we've upset someone and we weren't very happy with it <laughs> and then weirdly about a few days later uh, we got a message on Facebook from David Farrant's widow who said she loved the episode and David would have loved it and she laughed and cried in equal measures at it so the rivalry still almost continued after we put the episode out right it does it does i i'm not checking my post for christmas cards from sean that's that's very true yeah uh if 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 he's listening and ever wants to uh have a pint oh it's my round but i don't think i'm ever going to be taken up on that but that such is the life of the podcaster I love that story, though. I just, it, even though we, uh, I love the fact that, you know, we had, we had the rivalry continued afterwards. And I love, I just love that story that actually the vampire doesn't matter. It's about those fantastic, eccentric characters. And talking of eccentric characters, Ben, mm-hmm. check, th- check this out for a segue. We did an episode on eccentric Englishman, which had some amazing stories of, I guess we are known, the English and the British, for being a little bit eccentric. And there's multiple stories in that episode. But the one I've picked out uh, to revisit uh, is the story of England's most miserly man. Oh, that's a good one. Have a listen. It's another tale from the 18th century, and it's about a guy called Daniel Dancer, which is quite a good name, I think. Dancer became a hermit as a money-saving exercise. He had inherited a profitable farm, but refused to spend any money on the business. The farm was in the greater London suburb of Harrow Weald. Daniel Dancer decided to move out of the main farmhouse in order to save money. He lived instead in a run-down shack on the estate, choosing to sleep on old sacks. In summer... He would wait for a sunny day to wash in a nearby pond, then lay in the sun naked until he was dry. This is because he didn't want to buy soap and, uh, and wouldn't wash because of that reason. In winter, he did not wash at all. One acquaintance of his noted, and I, and I quote, Notwithstanding his solitary tendencies, he was never without a colony of insects friends attached to his person. <laughs> <laughs> friends. while daniel lived in the shack uh, on the farm his equally frugal sister kept the farmhouse she managed to keep the weekly food bill to one piece of beef and 14 hard dumplings she once found a dead sheep which had been dead for quite a while apparently which had died of a mystery illness Uh, Not deterred by this, she made enough pies to last the pair for a whole month. The pair only had one friend, their (laughs) (laughs) neighbour. Oh, I'm so surprised. (laughs) Yeah, the guy who hasn't washed for like six months. (laughs) Why don't you come round for dinner? We've we've got mutton pie. We're having rancid pies. (laughs) Well, their only friend was their neighbour, Lady Tempest. Uh who helped out helped them out when daniel's daniel's uh, sister was on her deathbed and he had refused to waste money on a doctor for her 
After the death of the sister, Lady Tempest kept an eye on the frugal Daniel Dancer. On one occasion, Lady Tempest took pity on Dancer and sent him a meal of trout stewed in claret. Dancer, though happy to receive the meal, had a problem about how to heat it because he refused to waste money on a fire to heat the dish up. (laughs) So instead, he sat on it until he deemed it warm enough to eat. Oh my God. This tale has a slight twist to it, actually. Uh, Daniel Dancer died aged 50 in 1794, and the full craziness of his frugal behaviour was revealed, as money was found tucked away all over the farm. £2,500 was found in a dunghill in the cowshed, £600 was found in a teapot, £200 was found up a chimney and various amounts of money were stuffed down chairs throughout the house. Jesus, that's a lot of money. The, well, <laughs> here's the twist. Their neighbour, Lady Tempest, was rewarded for her dedication to the couple as Dancer left her everything in his will. The cash alone would equate to inheriting around £300,000 today. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah there's a couple of bits about that <laughs> that story, which, you know, there's the fact that he got that meal and sat on it to warm it up because he didn't want to spend on lighting a fire or fuel. Um, and there was the fact, the twist in the tale, that the neighbour who kind of looked after him... Uh, was left this huge amount of money which he'd stored away in various places around the property that I was going to say he lived in, but he didn't live in it. He lived in almost the uh, barn out the back because he didn't want to heat the house he lived in, but he left a fortune. Mm, so, mm. yeah, that, that's an amazing story, that. It is, and it is sad because it's kind of... It's almost like a form of mental illness and yeah, you know you, you 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 wish that he'd have uh, got got better but and enjoyed his life a bit and yeah. enjoyed his life yeah yeah. yeah yeah but i i really really like eccentric people and the the, clo- the more we've gone into lockdown like i think i've been into a work like a f- real world work situation uh like six times since since in the last 20 months probably and so the more and more i get into that the more and more i find myself sitting in my speedos wearing a pair of wellies <laughs> with an eeyore hat with pink floyd on in the background um with a disco ball above my head and i'm thinking well I'm just I'm just fulfilling my English man destiny. Well, you 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 say that Ben. I think what's weirder for me is that we're recording this on Zoom and that is an exact description of what I'm looking at right now. <laughs> well, like, what? I'm ben not a liar. In his speedos <laughs> <laughs> with the glitter ball above his head. It's, it's amazing I can actually get any words out. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not lying to the audience. That's how it works. Like, yeah, to be fair, okay. the thing is, the s- speedos, they're just comfortable. I've got the heating turned up to 10. I don't need anything else. The wellies, <laughs> they're just practical. If I have to go out into the garden to retrieve an Amazon parcel, I'm fully prepared. <laughs> it's, it's all sorted. It's fine. 
Well, if you're still with us, um, we're going to move on to the story of possibly, if not the luckiest, but one of the luckiest men in the world. We did a whole episode on luck and there's various bits on it. But check out this amazing story of a man from Australia and started off with bad luck and he ended up with the most amazing good luck. Have a listen. I came across this story, which is just, I lo- it's just amazing. So let me lay it out to you. So this is a story uh, of a man called Bill Morgan. He's an Australian truck driver, or he was an Australian truck driver. He was 37 years old in uh, 1999 when this story broke. Yeah, he, was, he was living in a caravan, uh, and he's been called one of the luckiest men alive. So it didn't start lucky for him. He had a serious road accident in which afterwards, to the shock of it, he suffered a heart attack. His heart stopped for 14 minutes and basically they thought he was dead, but paramedics managed to revive him even after his heart stopped for 14 minutes and he came back round. Jeez. However, he was ill, fell into a coma... After 14 days in a coma on a life support, his family were asked whether they want to uh, turn off the life support and end his life. Uh, Lucky for him, they said no. And he made a full recovery. (laughs) Wow. So after he made a recovery, checked out of the hospital, he thought, God, I'm the luckiest man alive, and decided to go to uh, a local store and buy a lottery scratch card. He scratched off the card, <laughs> and he won a car. What? That's amazing. <laughs> it gets better. Well, he deserves it, right? He d- deserved it, right? So, you know you know what it's like, TV news. A local TV station in Melbourne heard about this story uh, and wanted to do an interview and run a segment on his good fortune, right? Why wouldn't you? Perfect. Perfect and finally story, as we like to call them. So what they did, uh, they said to this guy, Morgan, can we interview you um, at the shop where you bought your winning ticket? He said, fine. So they took him back to the shop where he bought the winning ticket. They did an interview. And then, you you know, they basically asked him to reenact what he did for the cameras. So we know this, don't they? So while they're talking over the top of him, they just wanted some shots of him buying a lottery ticket scratching it off yeah all that stuff yeah yeah typical television yeah 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 uh so they filmed him buying the scratch card so he went up bought the bought a new scratch card uh put it on a counter and started to scratch it off um and i'm just going to play you a little bit of audio of what happened next have a listen to this I just won 250,000. I'm not joking. I just won 250,000. You have to. Congratulations, Bill. Fantastic. Look. I think I'll have another heart attack. That, that for me qualifies, and I know we're not covering it 
in this series or the, uh, this this four specials. But when you talk about jots, this is a jot. This yes. is the ultimate jot. Yes. It's such an extraordinary thing to happen. And it's the odds are so stacked against it. Of course, if if you kind of if you're a fan of Douglas Adams and you enjoy talking about the statistics of all the possibilities in all the permutations of all the planets in all of the universe, then of course it will happen. Of course it will happen. Is literally the equivalent of you know a dinosaur finding a delicious steak and then his girlfriend going did did was is the one for me and then suddenly there's another delicious steak appears in front of him you know yeah yeah a triceratops it's the same deal but at the same time what makes it so brilliant is is his lack of comprehension about what's just happened it must have blown all the neurons in his brain i yeah, can't yeah. imagine how it would have happened and and i do think like the reason i relate it to jots is it isn't on the surface of it paranormal but it does strike me as like it's not it's not normal yeah of course if you're a mathematician maybe it is maybe it is but that does say to me if this can happen to a human being and win these, you know, these two things, like my brain, and this might just be my brain, but I kind of go, well, is it not possible that a pleosaur could have survived and live in Loch Ness? You know, it seems to be the same yeah. odds to my brain yeah. who doesn't understand maths. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think it's it's really stuck with me, that story. It's mm. amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well... Uh, from one of the luckiest men in the world, I think maybe we'll move to someone who might be described as uh, one of the most talented, if not mysterious, men in the world. And that's the man who built the incredible, mysterious coral castle single-handed. Have a oh. listen. He is a Russian Empire immigrant to the United States. Um just in case you're wondering, he was um, born in January 1887 and passed away in 1951. But he built this extraordinary, extraordinary structure. So it's called the Coral Castle, but the first thing to point out is it's actually made of oolite limestone. So it's not really coral, although it sort of looks coralish. That's why people call it that. Right. And he built this thing using at least a thousand tons of stone. So he built walls, he built carvings into the walls, he built furniture, he even built a tower. And all of this was built in Florida, obviously in the United States. And the um, the oolite which does have concentrations of fossil shells and coral within it, is found across that area, as you can imagine. It's, um, uh, you know, close to the sea and ancient seas and that sort, of, uh, that sort of thing. What's extraordinary about this structure, though, is that like um, things like Gobekli Tepe and other amazing structures, this is put together without mortar. So... The only thing that holds these bricks together is their own weight. And the craftsmanship is so skillful that the stones are connected with such precision that no light passes through the joints. 
So in the parameter stones that make the perimeter wall, they all have a uniform height of about eight foot. And even in 1992, when there was a Category 5 hurricane through the area, none of those stones shifted. It's that well built. And as I say, he made other things out of it. So, for example, he made a table in the shape of Florida. He made 25 rocking chairs. He made a bathtub. He made a bed. He made a throne. He made a fountain, a a telescope even. He is going to town with this. He's not just a few things, you know, wedged together. This is the bit where it starts to encroach into the paranormal. So the largest stone is 27 tonnes. And so that is like used in uh, one of the uh, big monoliths, which stands by the entrance. Um, And then there's, he's done other remarkable things. So there's a nine ton revolving eight foot tall gate and it fits so perfectly within the walls. Um, Again, there's no gaps around it, but it's so well balanced. It's reported that a child could open it with the push of a finger so this is an incredible piece of engineering and not something that could you would think could be done by a single individual perhaps perhaps because in 1986 when this gate stopped working it took six men and a 45 ton crane to move that gate wow by the way, once the gate was removed, the engineers discovered that, um, uh, well, they discovered not how he'd centred and balanced it, but they did discover that uh, the rock was uh, rested on an old truck bearing. And the reason that the gate stopped working is because that truck bearing um, wore out. But that is, you know, that, that's, that's on the side. Well, but, but it's, it's a, it, quite an interesting aside. The bit that stopped it working was nothing to do with the guy that built it, you could argue, right? Yeah, no, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, it took him 28 years to build this castle. And this is where the stories come from, I think. He refused to allow anyone to watch while he worked. Interesting. Although, tantalisingly, a few teenagers claimed to have witnessed his work and they said that he caused the blocks of coral to move like hydrogen balloons. That was their <laughs> description. Right. And the only tool that Leeds Skalnin spoke of using was something called a perpetual motion holder. Now, we'll come to that in a minute. That isn't strictly true. This is what... So that is what you will find as the common description of why this place is so mysterious. He did actually use levers and pulleys and other devices because they're on display there now. But the mystery still remains. How did one man build that by himself? And why are these peculiar reports going on? Oh, and by the way, he didn't just build it once. He built it twice. So he moved it um, in about 1936. He moved it from Florida City to its final location in the South Dixie Highway in Miami. So, and it took him three years, which is, I think that's pretty remarkable. When he arrived in the US, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis, which was allegedly going to be terminal. But he claims that magnets had an effect on this disease. And magnets 
start to form a part of the story about how okay. it's possible it's possible that he did something other than use just sheer brute force of um, weights and pulleys. He wrote a book called Magnetic Current, which you can still find available. You can buy it on Amazon. It doesn't cost um, thousands of pounds. Although, once again, um, I found a PDF version. It's about um, 50-odd pages long. And it's a very unassuming book. But there is... I found, like... To try and understand what he thought magnetism was and how this applies to the Coral Castle, this little tiny passage kind of gives you a clue. So he thinks about magnets different to how other people think about magnets, how the rest of the world thinks about magnets. He says, the magnets can be shifted and concentrate. You can see that the metal is not the real magnet. The real magnet is the substance that is circulating in the metal. Each particle in the substance is an individual magnet by itself and contains both north and south individual magnets. So what he's saying here is that it's almost... Um, it, it, it's behaving like a wave, but there are magnetic particles, if you will, almost like light is, is the way he's describing this. Right. And he says they are so small, they can pass through anything. In fact, they can pass through metal easier than through the air. They are in constant motion, running one kind of magnets against the other kind. And if guided in the right channels, they may possess perpetual power. And it's this notion of perpetual electromagnetic energy, which leads us to this thought that, well, perhaps if he had discovered some way of using magnetism that isn't well understand, understood by the rest of science perhaps he was able to move these blocks in a different way. So I, I think the thing about that story, that when, when I started putting the research together, was it was either the story of somebody who was incredibly clever and, you know, I guess used uh, the, the mechanic, the, you know, mathematical mechanics to manipulate weight that would be beyond what he had to, within his arsenal. You know, he, he's not somebody yeah. that had, like, JCBs and stuff. So either, either he was, like, a very nuanced mathematician who had a penchant for building peculiar structures, or, and this is where I, I hope it comes through, but I, or he had some kind of extra special help from either some knowledge or a device that he'd created or something like that but it's still yeah. one of the most astonishing stories and people still to this day we still don't really know how he did it and i know there'll be a lot yeah. of people like i alluded to this in the story like yeah in the museum or in the tour you can see all the tools that he used but that's fine but like what we still haven't done is seen how one man lifts a five-ton stone by himself yeah. without any machinery. That is that is true. That is a truism. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying either way. I'm just saying until we see exactly how we did it, it's still a marvel. Well, I think the interesting thing for me about that story, and I've thought about it a lot, 
probably out of everything we've covered since we started the podcast, it's probably the only story where actually a non-paranormal explanation is far more mind-blowing than a paranormal one. Because if there is nothing paranormal or magical or some secret, you know, mysterious thing he's discovered around magnetism, if he literally just built that on his own using his immense brain and skills, that's even more fantastical than anything paranormal to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get you, I get you. And, and I suppose a lot of people, again, as I alluded to, relate this back to, for example, the building of the pyramids and Gobekli Tepe and uh, Gobekli Tepe, I should say. Yeah. Um, it's easy for me to say. Yeah. And it, 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 that sophisticated alignment of straight lines and angles and things like that, you know, it's completely possible that there was an art of stonemasonry that existed before our current time and i i'm completely up to accepting that and i and i think it's much much more likely than you know that we we got help from extraterrestrials to build the pyramids i mean why were they want to i don't i don't know unless they were keen lego fiends or something but um you're right it it speaks of a knowledge which we don't have in our textbooks and i think you know, either that's paranormal or it is, you know, just massively interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, moving on to another mystery. Uh, one of the episodes I really enjoyed putting together was an episode called Satan is a DJ, where we looked mm-hmm. at the strange world of backmasking in records. So... Uh, backmasking in records, m- the majority of them have been put there deliberately. The Beatles used it a lot, and it's basically flipping the recording and playing it backwards. And some artists left secret messages, which they recorded forwards, but then dropped backwards onto the record. But probably the most intriguing example is from Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven where if you play certain lyrics backwards, it said that you can hear satanic messages. Have a listen to the story. But it's probably Led Zeppelin who really connected music, backmasking and Satan, or maybe inadvertently rather than deliberately. In fact, there are many rumours that the band's legendary guitarist, Jimmy Page, was a devil worshipper because of his obsession with Alistair Crowley, who died in 1947 who Wikipedia described, interestingly, as an English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. <laughs> and dog lover. Yeah. yeah, I love that. That's, that's a hell of a CV, isn't it? <laughs> we should remember him for his mountaineering and devil worshipping. Yeah, I can, can you imagine that in the interview? So what are your hobbies? Oh, I'm an occultist, a ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your mountaineering. <laughs> so as Rolling Stone magazine wrote about this, Jimmy Page's Crowley obsession led to whispers that he, he and Satan were tight. And yet another rumour claimed that members of Led Zeppelin had made a Faustian bargain with the devil in exchange for stardom. So you can see how this thing started to ramp yeah. up, right? 
Now, uh, Rolling Stone magazine, brilliant magazine, uh, they did some fact-checking on this, and they say there's no evidence Page was a Satanist, though he believed in Crowley's philosophy of personal liberation. He even had Crowley's dictum, Do What Thou Wilt, inscribed in the runoff groove of the original vinyl release of Led Zeppelin III, which I didn't know. I did have a look on eBay to see whether you can get... It's always hard to know whether it's the first pressing and whether it's got that in the groove, but... Uh, original pressings of that album I'm assuming with that written in the runoff groove I've seen on eBay for going for over a thousand dollars so yeah it's probably that because you've got that satanic collection you've got all that you can see why that bumps up the price right so when you say it's, it's, it is in the runoff it's literally written in English yeah in the oh, I see you know people you know in that runoff groove at the end of the record uh, lots of artists would kind of scribble things on the original uh uh, plates that were, they were printed from. Yes, I think uh, I think there was a very famous one with Elvis Costello, who was I can't remember who he was pissed off with, either his record company or his manager or something. Um, so he wrote something very derogatory in the runoff message of one of his albums with the guy's phone number, saying call him and kind of abuse him effectively, which was... No, that never got published. Yeah, yeah, it got... Yeah, because bands would come in at the end and just do that. So, you know, if you've got any of those early records, there are often, if you check them, there are often weird things inscribed in that runoff. Good grief. Yeah. Um, Page did little to deflect the rumours of his kind of satanic beliefs throughout Zeppelin's history... Uh, perhaps because he thought it was good for business. It's not going to hurt, probably sell a few more records. He said, I don't really want to go on about my personal beliefs or my involvement in magic. So again, this is what he told Rolling Stones. I'm not interested, I'm not interested in turning anybody on to anybody that I'm turned on to. If people want to find things, they find them themselves. Right, Okay. Now, these rumours of Satanism within Led Zeppelin were also spread by a televangelist, Paul Crouch, in 1982, when he claimed to have listened to the band's seminal uh, track, Stairway to Heaven. He said he played it backwards. Why he chose to play it backwards, I'm still not quite sure. So, the main lyrics he refers to played forwards are... If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean from the May Queen. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Now, so Paul Crouch, this evangelist, <clears throat> claims he played the whole record, but specifically those lyrics backwards. And he said this is what he heard when those, that section of the song is played backwards. He said, it says, when played backwards, Here to my sweet Satan, the one whose path would make me sad, whose power is Satan, he will give those with him 666. There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer, sad Satan. Right. So I thought, okay, I'll check this out. So you can go onto YouTube and there are lots of videos that play it forwards, play it backwards with kind of clips of the lyrics. I'm sure you've seen them as yes, well, Ben. I have. Um, and I started to think, well, this, this, and when you look at, when you look at it with the words and you hear it, you go, oh my God, that, that's exactly what it says. And then I started to think, well, you know what, with YouTube videos and the internet, you can't always trust 
So what I did was take my copy of Stairway to Heaven, uh, load it up into GarageBand and uh, have a listen to it backwards myself. And what I heard at first, it completely surprised me how the words came out. I couldn't, when I didn't look at the words in front of me, I couldn't hear all those lines, here to my sweet Satan, the one whose path would make me sad, all that stuff. I could certainly make out the words Satan a few times and I could certainly make out the words 666. And I know you listened to it recently, so I yes. don't know what you think. Well, that's the thing. I tried to, uh, the, before I watched it, if you like, I listened to it w- without watching the the YouTube screen and certainly really clearly jump out the word Satan and 666 really, really clearly. Yeah. I tell you what we'll do. Let's let's play a little bit of that backwards, okay? <clears throat> and then people can make up their own mind what they think. So the words you're listening out for to see if you can hear them. So he, the guy claims you can hear the words "Here to my sweet Satan, the one whose path would make me sad, whose power is Satan. He will give those with him six six six. There's a little tool shed where he made us suffer, sad Satan. Have a listen. I I I'm still in two minds about that one. I still think like there's a there's a few people and there's a couple of podcasts you can find i'm not going to give a link to them because it's you know it's their own business but there's a there's a few people who make hay out of uh playing people's speech backwards and then attributing different meanings to it i think it is really really weird the stuff that you covered in there and it does seem like sometimes it's more of a coincidence than not but uh, it's one of those things I don't know, I genuinely don't know I really really like the story I really I'm I'm sort of intrigued by like neo-Christians who try to blame rock bands for uh, encoding supposed messages in their records and like I think we said at the time you'd, you'd have to be quite the nutter to encode a message about killing yourself in an album when the only way you can make money is ensuring that the people who listen to your music buy six or seven albums and a t-shirt and <laughs> yeah. a tour ticket and yeah, write the name the of gig. your yeah. and come to the gig and write your band name in tipex on their dms and tell yeah. their kids it doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any yeah. sense at all but it is a brilliant flipping mystery I, I think that I think you summed it up really well. It is a weird mystery. I still can't get my head around how the televangelist who almost broke that story or listened to that record backwards, why he decided to do it. There's a song called Stairway to Heaven. I'll just have a listen to that backwards. Oh my mm. God, it says Satan. It, it is a, it's a weird story on many fronts, but you can hear things in it definitely but as you said ben 
more likely a strange coincidence. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. So moving on from Satan, this <laughs> there's not often you can do this on a podcast. We're we're in the unique position we can do this. We can do a segue saying, "Well, that's enough about Satan. Let's talk about the Grim Reaper." <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's such a dude. Yeah. Here is uh, some interesting stories uh, of early encounters with the Grim Reaper. And actually, is the Grim Reaper an alien species? See what you think. The actual personification of entities which were there during the time of the plague, which were then turned into the image of uh, the Grim Reaper. So this is um, an account from 1682, but it refers to a time uh, from the previous century. It refers to 1559. And this is a, um, it's not an eyewitness account, obviously, but it's a record from 1682. And to quote verbotum, it says, In Brandenburg there appeared in 1559 horrible men, of whom at first 15 and later on 12 were seen. The foremost had beside their uh, posteresia, so I think that's like probably posterior. (laughs) That's easy for you to say. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Little heads, the others fearful faces and long scythes with which they cut at the oats so that the swish could be heard at a great distance but the oats remained standing. When a quantity of people came running out to see them, they went on with their mowing. What the account then goes on to say, it kind of goes on with a lot of this flowery language, which would embarrass my tongue if I carried on with it. But after this account from Brandenburg, it was immediately followed by an outbreak of the plague. And what is kind of interesting there is that it describes these horrible men which is a direct quote and they've got these small heads and they've got these peculiar features and they've got these devices which are described as scythes and the interpretation of the people at the time it clearly says is that they are in a field scything crops you then start to come up with the thought that perhaps these aren't scythes they are devices Right. right there's it, it and so it's a group of uh non-human entities with devices that's the that's the sort of peculiar thing we'll discover is that perhaps those devices are the cause of uh, of the plague so he okay. also in his book has this other account so this one is from hungary and this is a contemporary account from 1571 And uh, so it goes on to say, in the year of Christ, 1571, was seen at Kremnitz in the mountain towns of Hungary on Ascension Day in the evening to the great perturbation of all when on Schurlersburg, I think, there appeared so many black riders that the opinion was prevalent that the Turks were making a second raid, but who rapidly disappeared again and thereupon a raging plague broke out in the neighbourhood. And then the author goes on to explain that a feature of this raid was the stinking mist. And this 
stinking mist is repeated again and again in connection with the plague infection. So all of these uh, accounts from around that period, they talk about this this mist, and some people describe it as um, being dark as night. Other people talk about it as um, uh, like this dank dark thing that um is sprayed out and sprayed out is definitely a term that is used right and and they say that the plague is transmitted by inhaling this stinking mist and like you rightly said there from our own image of the plague doctor he has this beak yeah and that beak was stuffed with sweet smelling items that was right. the whole reason for it being there because the plague was associated with this horrible stench and in current sort of accepted historical terms those the the stench comes from the fact that well we've you know this is a time with open sewers poor personal hygiene and then the people who are infected with this they are gonna not be particularly pleasant to deal with they've got they've got pustulating sores all over them right. they've they're likely to have um terrible breath because these pustulating sores infect the mouth as well and so we've come to accept that the reason that these plague doctors go around with these beaks full of sweet smelling stuff is because okay there was that like this simplistic uh acknowledgement that um the smell uh of the you know the death and the disease was what caused you to be infected but maybe it goes deeper than that i think all of our modern history is discounting these very credible accounts of these peculiar beings that seem to be going around spreading this this well as they say, stench of a mist. It stayed with us that episode, Ben, I think, because we have referenced it a few times about, you know, fogs and green mists and all that stuff in connection with UFOs. It, I, I think that's what's fascinating. I know we, we're going to do an episode on uh, UFOs in a couple of weeks, the best UFO stuff. But yeah, it does make you think, was the Grim Reaper some kind of alien creature? And uh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and and it also, if if you kind of take those stories to heart, it does make you think that we might be an experiment. And so you know, recently, and we've done episodes on this where we talk about uh, UFOs taking an interest in our military sites and very specifically our nuclear weapons sites but perhaps earlier on before we were that sophisticated to build such weapons of mass destruction perhaps they were more interested in refining the gene pool and you know one way of doing that is is laying poison just like we might do for ants and yeah it i uh, it is one of those stories where when i'm driving home at night it's a misty night there's a full moon it's two in the morning i do wonder whether i'm going to encounter one of those beings but that just might be me well let's hope you don't encounter one especially if it is the grim reaper we're going to close i have to say one of the most fun episodes i had putting together was an episode called the truth isn't out there <laughs> where I looked at a number of things 
that we believe to be true, which are not true. Uh, and you'll hear in a minute with the clip that we'll play, there's a, there's a whole raft of them, some of which still blowing my mind today. But I thought it was a, it was a really interesting episode for me to put together because it, it shows how quickly falsehoods or things that don't represent the facts can circulate and just become commonly accepted. I'm going to focus on things that people believe, some of them even myself that I've believed, that have been proved not to be true. But the myth still makes us believe that they are true. I'm going to start with a bit of a historical question just to give you an example of what I'm going to be talking about today. So Ben, you and I, if we were living in the Middle Ages at the age we are now, yes. do, do you think we would have exceeded our life expectancy? Um, I think I'd be coming up to it very, very shortly. Yeah. Well, I, like a lot of people, believed that the life expectancy around the Middle Ages was 30 years old. And though it's kind of technically true, that's the average age in the Middle Ages was 30, if you count the infant mortality rate. Oh. And the infant mortality rate was incredibly high, and that brings the figures down. So if you survive childhood in the Middle Ages, you were likely to live well into your 60s. No way. People use spices to mask the flavour of rotting meat. Oh. In truth, spices were incredibly expensive, so they were only used to embellish high-quality food. Ah, okay. I hadn't put Which those makes two complete two together. logical sense. It right? does, it does, it does. Um, let's look at an example with its roots in the paranormal. And the fact that no witches were burned at the stake in the Salem witch trials. Really? Not a one? Not one. 20 alleged witches were executed, 19 by hanging, and one was crushed to death. In fact, even during the witch hunts in Britain, very few accused were burned at the stake. Hanging was the preferred method of punishment. Here's a good one. Let's talk about America. Putting aside the debate about whether you can discover something that's already there, historians generally agree that the Americas were discovered by a Norseman named Leif Erikson 500 years before Christopher Columbus. That's because he had his mobile phone, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And he had a 500. Yeah. But this is a great example of what I'm talking about because if you Google who discovered America, which I did before we started recording, in big bowls letters it says Explorer Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus, yeah. Yeah. Siri gives you the same answer. That's what we were taught at school. Yeah. But it's, it's agreed, widely agreed by historians that it was 500 years earlier by a Norseman called Leif Erikson. This next one really upset me so brace yourself ben okay gunslingers didn't really exist gunslingers what cowboys 
So the Western movie trope of two men standing in the street waiting to draw their guns is just that. It's a trope. It is believed that the American version of dueling, which is where the thing comes from, dueling that was happened in Europe, only happened two times in the Old West. And in fact, the term gunslinger was invented for a Western movie in the 1920s. Oh, my God. So if you ask the average person in the street who created Mickey Mouse, what would they say? Uh, Walt Disney. Yep. Well, as you probably guessed, it wasn't Walt Disney. What? It was actually actually created by a guy with a great name called Oob Iwix. Uh, and it was based on a Disney character, which he also created, called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Iwix drew Mickey, and it seems that Walt kind of took the credit or never corrected anyone that he didn't actually originally create it himself. Science, on the other hand, would not propagate untruths. That would be insane. And as Albert Einstein once said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Mm-hmm. Apart from the fact he never said it. Oh, my God. <laughs> he never said anything close to it. And if you wanted to reference that quote in an essay or a dissertation and you wanted to go to its credited source, it's actually uh, from someone called Rita Mae Brown and it was in a book called Sudden Death. This bit's going to blow your mind. Which was uh, published in... 1983. Oh, my God. Chameleons change their colour to match their surroundings, right? I've seen them. Not true. Their resting state is good colour for camouflaging them, but they actually only change colour to communicate, such as attracting a mate. It's really hard if you're in the queue for Starbucks and it's like <laughs> turning itself into a cappuccino. You're like, yeah. is that a latte or a cappuccino? Yeah. Don't know what it is. But wait, I've, I'm sure I've seen, like, you put them onto your hat. No, maybe I haven't. Maybe I've made it all up. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that octopuses do. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, octopuses. Yeah, that makes sense. But I don't think... That's for, uh, yeah, again, multiple sources I've got that from. Chameleons don't change their surroundings. Right, so Colours now we're saying that Boy George, when he called somebody a karma chameleon, didn't really mean anything. No, unless he was trying to attract a mate. <laughs> 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 but as you know, with his lovers, they come and go. They come and go. So... If Boy George ever heard that, I would imagine he's probably swapped his chameleon for a bearded dragon. We definitely know they don't uh, change change their bodily output. But, like, one of the most surprising things about that was, like, I would genuinely, genuinely, before you gave me those facts, I would have said that chameleons were like cuttlefish and they changed their colour. And, um... It's, it's both disappointing and enlightening. The only thing I can add to that is to say that if you've ever seen one of those very tiny pygmy chameleons, one of the ones that like sits on the end of your finger, 
but it looks like it, its proportions are that of a actual size chameleon. It's a remarkable beast, and uh, anyone listening, just Google it because it's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's an extraordinary thing. Excellent. Well, that, I've enjoyed our journey revisiting the world of cryptids and general weirdness. Um, and next week, I thought, Ben, we could focus on ghosts. Excellent. My second favourite after werewolves. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I've, I've hope you enjoyed that uh, short roundup of some of the episodes. If you haven't heard those episodes go back check them out because there is a lot more stuff in them uh, and we will be back next week to uh, talk about ghosts so we'll see you then on the quantum mechanics bye take care bye the quantum mechanics.